Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Grace be with you all. Many years ago, I was flipping channels, just surfing through the TV, and came across uh, a show, kind of embarrassed to admit that I watched it for a few seconds. It was called Dr. Phil, The Dr. Phil Show. You've probably heard of it. Uh, maybe some of you have seen it. Some of you maybe are big fans, but uh, I don't think it's on the air anymore. But it, it caught my attention because there was a, a couple on there, and they were having marriage issues, and they were arguing, and it was very dysfunctional. And maybe if you watch Dr. Phil, maybe this is his thing. But I found it interesting. He said, he, he said, okay, what are you getting out of that? And in a nice southern draw, Texan draw, he said it. And uh, the, the couple, like, looked at each other, and he's like, what's your payoff? What, what are you getting out of that, acting that way? And they thought about that for a second. And, and I thought about it, and I thought, you know, Something true to what he's saying there. And his worldview is obviously that we have selfish intentions for most of the things that we do. That what motivates our behavior, even if it's dysfunctional behavior, is thinking that there's some kind of payoff that I'm going to get out of it. Now, that payoff can be vastly different for each one of us, and it can look so different between couples or individuals. But nevertheless, his sort of worldview is, you're doing this because you're getting something back in return. And as we look back into 1 Timothy again today, Paul is going to deal with a very similar way of thinking. People who were coming to Jesus and they thought that their payoff was going to be something other than the spiritual blessings, the spiritual benefits that God gives us through Jesus. And they were looking for maybe some possible materialistic benefits or some monetary benefits uh, because of their faith or so-called faith. And so I want us to look at this passage today and really see a couple of things that Paul is going to point out in 1 Timothy. And we're in chapter 6, our final chapter in 1 Timothy, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. So the app is a great place to go for a lot of extra notes, cross-reference scriptures that I'm going to allude to, uh, mention during the sermon. So it's all in one place there for you if you'd like to use your app, or you can still use your Bible right here, Batson's Babel, right? Actual Bible in hand. Yeah. All right. Oh, good job, Larissa. All right. So let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that you give us to provide us truth. God, we thank you that we are blessed more than we ever even realized with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians said, it says in the heavenly places, God, you have poured out your blessings upon us. And God, I pray that as we all really look into our own hearts and allow the Holy Spirit to examine us, how that we can have false ideas 
how we can uh, arrive at just uh, bad thinking in regard to you, God, and help us to run to your word to find truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul's going to identify two lies. And the first one here is following Jesus should make my life more comfortable. All right, following Jesus should make my life more comfortable. Now, interesting, you may not get this when we first read this verse, but just follow along with me. He says, let all, this is Paul writing to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And so what we have here in Romans, Roman times, the term bondservant or slave could refer to somebody who voluntarily entered into this service obligation, but usually it involves somebody who was locked into this permanent position of being a servant or a slave. And under Roman law, a bondservant was considered the owner's personal property. So basically they had zero rights. And during the first century, if you know history at all, roughly one-third of all Romans were slaves, were servants. And interesting enough, it, this is much different than the slavery that we think about in America, the transatlantic slave trade, because during the Roman time, slaves could have positions such as doctors or lawyers or even politicians. And so they were just a functioning, working part of the society. Now, we know that Scripture, we looked at this way back in first, uh, chapter 1, verses 6, 8 through 10, I'm sorry, 8 through 10, where Paul talks about enslaving people being a sin. And in fact, he lumps it right in the category of people who kill their parents and those who are sexually immoral. So it's a big deal. And so this is definitely not the Bible going easy on slavery, although the Bible doesn't. If you ever get into a debate or discussion with someone and they say, well, the Bible doesn't really call out slavery. Why not? Well, first of all, the purpose of the scriptures weren't to expose everything in society that was wrong and that was messed up and was sinful. The purpose of the scriptures is to present God and his plan through Jesus Christ. But also the fact is that scripture does make it clear that enslavement is a sin. And also uh, we know that this form of indentured servant, slavery, bond servant was much different than the slavery that we have in our mindset. It was just part of the culture. And so in the early church, imagine even today, like we were sitting here in the early church, there would be masters and slaves together. There would be people who were part of the body of Christ, who some were uh, obligated, so to speak. They were, they were responsible to this master. They had to follow the commands of the master. Both were believers. And so you had this issue that apparently was coming about in this church where Paul had to address where people did not know how to treat these relationships. Now that they're one in Christ, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says that, that masters and slaves were equal before God, equal in standing as the family of God. And so people should treat both with equal respect. It wasn't a matter of hierarchy or class. And so Paul's addressing Timothy here in these verses, and he's given just sound pastoral wisdom on how these bondservants, these slaves should treat their masters, how they should respond to their masters, and other passages talks about how masters should uh, speak, uh, treat their slaves. And so in verse 1, Paul speaks to slaves who are working for unbelieving masters, masters who aren't Christians. And look what he says. He says, they're to honor them so that the, God's name 
and his teaching would not be blasphemed. And so the, the point here is coming to Jesus, putting their faith in Jesus, did entitle them all of a sudden to no longer have to be a bondservant or slave. That Jesus didn't rescue them from their situation that they were in as a slave. That Jesus didn't provide that. That blessing wasn't, now you get a new job. They continued, and Paul says, continue in the same position that you had and do so in a way where God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. And so slaves should live for the glory of God. They should live for the advancement of the gospel. That was the purpose. Now, it's a stretch here to apply this at some level to our employment today, but I think it is an honest application, although it's a totally different scenario. Many of you work for someone who is an unbeliever. And oftentimes, you get very frustrated with the way that you're being treated, the way that they act to you, the way they speak to you. Your situation at work is maybe just doesn't seem like it, it, it's a kind of environment that it should be for a person living in the 21st century. Yet, I think this applies the same way, that as long as you work that job, you're to do so for God's glory so that God's name and his teaching would not be blasphemed. And I think about this in my own uh, personal life over the years. I've told this uh, before that back early on, maybe first year in college, I think I worked at McDonald's. And I was a believer. I, I, I was going to a Christian college. Uh, I, was, I cared about ministry. I wanted to be involved in ministry. But some way, somehow, I had begun to justify in my mind the fact that the McDonald's Corporation, who's this massive you know, company that ha is worth billions of dollars, yet they're paying me a measly $3.35 an hour, which was minimum wage back in the late 80s. Anybody remember that? 335? Yeah. Um, that was my minimum wage. So I'm like, what? You know, you know I, I deserve free food, right? I deserve to be able to take food and eat it anytime I want. Now, they were generous enough to give us a, a cheeseburger, a fries, and a drink if we worked, you know, an, an eight-hour day. But, you know, I, I'm like, I, I, I deserve more than that. I want a Big Mac, you know? I want a double Big Mac. And I began to justify my behavior. In fact, uh, I would go back, back into the, the, the cooler, the, the freezer area, the, the refrigerator area, walk in on the way to get something, grab an orange juice, open it, chug an orange juice, lay it back down. One day I went in and said, whoever is drinking these orange juices will be terminated if we catch you. I totally, completely justified the fact that this person was, that this company and my management, the owner, was unfair and I deserved to do what I wanted to do. And so you can see how that if in a voluntary position where I'm like working there of my own free will, I can come to that kind of thinking. Imagine somebody who's a, who's a slave, who's in a position and has no way to get out of it, how they could begin to treat their master with much resentment, disdain, and now think, man, I'm, I'm in Jesus. Like Jesus is my savior. I'm, I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Why should I have to respond or, or, or live in a way that this guy says I should? He's not even a believer. I'm a believer. And so you see the mindset that could happen and this, this form of entitlement that could take place. 
Now, verse 2 deals with even a more difficult situation, which is a believing servant with a believing master. Look at verse 2. Those who have a believing master must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they should serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So think about that. Think, man, surely if anybody should cut me some slack, it's this fellow believer. I'm going on Sundays, and I'm sitting in the, in the church with him, and we're worshiping together. We're treated as equal. The pastor, the, the apostle, Paul, the Timothy, they treat me as equal. But yet I go back into my home Sunday afternoon, and all of a sudden I'm being told what to do and bossed around and treated you know, in a way that doing jobs that I don't really like to do. And, and, and this guy, he says he's a believer. And so you can see the tension that would arise in a situation like that. And, and I think about even in our own lives, again, some loose application here that how we can expect different behavior from believers that are over us or have authority. I think of like people who maybe you have a landlord who's a Christian, you're a Christian, and you find yourself, you know, not paying your rent on time, and then you get mad at your landlord because they're expecting you to pay. Well, you're, you say you're a Christian. This has happened to family members of ours who are, are landlords. You say you're a Christian, you know, and you're not showing any mercy and grace to me whatsoever. Yet they go and spend money on lots of other things, but they think because of this relationship to this other Christian that they should be able to get away with it. Or maybe you get pulled over by a police officer who's a Christian. He's like, man, i got to play the Christian card on this brother, you know, because it gets me out of this ticket, right? And you're like, hey, don't you go to, over to this church? Yeah, I do, yeah. And, and you try to work that for your favor. So you see the situation that these slaves, these bond servants, found themselves in. That it was very much an attitude check, like what's your purpose because of the way they were acting because they thought that they were deserved some entitlement because they were both Christians. So becoming a believer, following Jesus, doesn't entitle us to greater comfort. It doesn't make it where things should always work out the way that we think they should work out. And then the, the second big lie we see in this passage is following Jesus should bring me more money or more success. A lot of people think that. We're going to walk through a few verses here and expose some other fallacies of these false teachers before we get to the direct connection here with their idea that this should bring them in more money. So look at verse 2. Paul writes, teach and urge these things. He's just saying, I want you to share this with the body. I want this to be part of the conversation that's happening there in Ephesus. Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so if you look at this verse here, Paul's exposing some fallacies that the, the false teachers were bringing to the church. And he says, you can't allow this to be the case. Look at the first one. He says, the, the teachers of truth must focus upon Jesus. Look, he says, they have to focus on the sound words of Jesus Christ. False teachers don't make it all about Jesus. He's not the center of it all. 
Because usually the false teacher wants to be the center of it all. They want to be the center of attention. They want to promote themselves. But a true teacher focuses in on the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second one, he says, these people who are puffed up and with conceit and they understand nothing, they are teaching something that doesn't correspond with godliness. Look at verse 2. Paul says, and the teaching should accord with godliness. Following Jesus always leads to greater godliness. It does. If you really know Jesus and you really have a relationship with him, then your life over time should become more and more holy. That sin should not have the hold on you that it had 10 years ago. That these sins that were these besetting sins, these struggles that you were dealing with, that you look back and you think, well, maybe I don't have perfect victory over it, and maybe I fall sometimes, but it's sure not as much as it used to be. Because Jesus is forming you to be more like himself. And if you look back over the course of the last, say, five to ten years, and you don't see any holiness being developed in your life, that's really a time to do some serious heart work and heart check. Because Jesus promised you, as a believer, that he's going to conform you more into the likeness of his son. Or God said that he was going to conform you more into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. You would become more like Jesus. And so these false teachers who are so full of themselves full of conceit, they understood nothing, they weren't concerned with practical godliness. They were just concerned with what they could get out of it. So Jesus practically changes your marriage, your parenting, the way you handle money. All of these areas should be more and more in line with godliness. And then the next one he points out is following Jesus leads to life change, not just to more head knowledge, not just to more information about theology. Look what he says about the false teachers. Verse 4, he says, he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. I mean, these guys could talk the talk. Look, verse 4, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. So these guys are lawyers. I mean, I mean they're, they're, they're nailing it. They can spot when you say the wrong thing, you have the wrong nuance, you're talking about something that maybe you don't know everything about, and they know it all because they're conceited. They're full of pride. They know the stuff. But look what he says. It produces nothing but envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, verse 5, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Paul just nails it. He says these people, they think they know it all. They think they have all this knowledge and all this wisdom they think because they can articulate themselves well or argue with the best of them. They think in some way that's some godliness that they're bringing to the table. And it's not. Because godliness always works its way out in holiness. And they're, they're showing just the opposite of it. They're driven by pride. And all they want to do is fight and argue and debate and discuss. Not live it out. And it reminds me of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2. It says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Doesn't care about understanding your point of view. Doesn't understand about hearing you out. All the fool wants to do is to say, here's what it should be. Here's the truth. You should believe me because I'm the authority. So just full of pride. So no focus on Jesus, not concerned with godliness, 
they love knowledge so they can feel important, they can argue, they can philosophize, and they're full of pride. And, 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 and so here's the, the tell. Here's where we really expose the false teachers. What's in it for me? What's my payoff? Look at verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The false teachers were attempting to use God and use knowledge for more money. I want more money. Bring it on. I'm smart in this culture, in the society they lived in. These philosophers, these people who could debate and discuss in the public forum, this was a good way to make a living for them. And that's what they were after, and that's what Paul exposes. And the truth always comes out when people are in it for the money. Just kind of a funny illustration. It wasn't super funny at the time, but when we were a couple of years ago, when we went up to Newark, New Jersey, up to Ray Dash's church, The Rock, to help with the Rock in the Block big thing they do, they close down a block right there in the really difficult, uh, poverty-stricken area of Newark, and they have inflatable games. They just cook all kinds of food and give it away. They have a stage set up. They have entertainment. They have a preacher. They have all this stuff going on, and they invite all these people to come and be part of this, this day. Well, one of the things that they did, and in fact, our church helped give to this cause, is they would give away, they give away backpacks to kids because it's right before school starts, and the backpacks are stuffed full of school supplies. And so the kids are super pumped, super excited to get these backpacks. Well, there's this young rapper in the community there in Newark, probably not a believer, Ray said, but he has this cute little song that was making some local headway there. It was getting some notoriety, and it was a cute song. It was called the Backpack Song. And the backpack song was, it was clean, and it was, it was fun, and it just talked about how the kids, you know, love their backpacks. And so they told this guy, you can, you can get up on stage, and you get one song, your backpack song. All right? So you can do your backpack song. So he gets up, and he does his backpack song. The kids are up there. They're excited. The backpacks are being pulled out. It's just a great scene. Well, he finishes his one song, and I'm standing there by Ray and Ruth, finishes his song, and then he instantly just goes into another song. Wasn't supposed to do it. Ray and Ruth are looking at each other like, what's he doing? Well, his next song exposed what he was really about. He wasn't about the backpacks. His song was, I want more money. All right? He kept saying that over and over again. I want more money. I want more money. All right? And he wanted more money. He was looking to build himself up and make a platform for himself. And he was going to use the church and Ray and Rock on the Block to make that happen. And the false teachers are the exact same way. They're using all this so they can get more money. They showed their true intentions. They were passing themselves off as godly, educated men in the church there. But in reality, they just wanted to draw people into the web of their own influence, their own cult, so that they could then be given money to live by and support themselves that way. And so they're identified by their false, their love for money, their false teachings exposed. So, while the situation in Ephesus may be a lot different than it is today, those two lies can very subtly slip into your own Christianity. That God deserve, I deserve God to give me comfort. I do all these things to get for God. What's in it for me? He should give me comfort. He should give me health. He should give me money. He should make my life more comfortable. 
And I'm afraid over the years, we've allowed our evangelistic zeal of sharing Christ to twist people into thinking that having a relationship with Jesus primarily is about what we get from it. All right, follow me for a second. I'm not saying any of these things are wrong, and it may not reach the standard of health, wealth, and prosperity that so many preachers preach today, but it's a subtle form of that, which we all can be guilty of. It says things like this, are you sad? Come to Jesus. Are you scared of hell? Jesus is your ticket. Are you depressed? Jesus is your comfort. Are you confused? Jesus is your guide. And while all of these are truths from Scripture, they're only part of true faith in Jesus. They're not the whole package. And we encourage prospective converts to become more focused on themselves and what they want than to be focused upon Jesus Christ himself. And so when you come into faith thinking that it's all about what I'm going to get out of this personally, then we lose sight that the fact is Jesus is what we get. We get Jesus. We get Jesus. And as Ephesians talks about, if you read New Morning Mercies today, Ephesians chapter 2, we have peace with God. We're reconciled with God. Is there anything that honestly even closely compares to the fact that you now have peace with God? We get Jesus. And I'm afraid we twist it in our Americanized way of looking at faith that all of a sudden we can do away with verses where Jesus talks about taking up your cross and following me. And all of a sudden it becomes an arrangement with Jesus. If, if I put my faith in Jesus, you Jesus, if I keep my nose pretty clean and do some good things, then Jesus, you're pretty much entitled then to, to do these things for me, to make me have a good family, a good home, a comfortable living, and keep us relatively safe. I'm afraid we have that mindset, even though we may not admit it and we may have to really search our heart. But that's not the Christianity. That's not the faith that Jesus offered. Jesus said, take up your cross. What was a cross? It was a form of execution, as we know, for Jesus. But during, before Jesus went to the cross, the Romans would carry their crosses through the streets on their way to be put to death. Take up your cross and follow me. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I don't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. That's a great reminder. In our very comfortable existence, when Christmas is very nice for us, we live in a materialistic country, in a materialistic world, and we have materialistic mindsets, and then Christmas has turned into just all about materialism, that we can turn this into, God, if you don't come through the way that I expect, then something's wrong here. And it's not on my end. It's mostly on your end. And we move ourselves to the center stage. And what's in it for me? It's a worldly attitude and a distorted view of God and biblical Christianity, which says, I do my part. God, you are expected to do your part. And again, I keep my nose clean. I go to church when I can. I give what I can. And God, now you bless me. You give me a good home, nice kids, a steady job, comfortable amount of money. 
But what happens when bad things inevitably happen in this broken world, these broken bodies? In Paul's day, the context here in this passage, what happens when your master tells you to do a job that you don't like to do? Hey, go do that. What? I'm above that. Shouldn't have to do that. That's not comfortable. In our day, what happens when companies downsize, when we experience suffering, when you learn that your kids are doing drugs? God, I tried to do everything you said to do. How could this happen? You owe me, God. I've given to you, now I expect you to repay me. What's in it for me? What's my payoff? So how do we deal with this question? Should we fight to remove this question completely out of our mind? Is reward a bad thing? Well, let's look at a couple of sides of this. One, Scripture calls us to agape love, to love others with an agape love, a love that gives expecting nothing in return. That's the God love that we model after, that we live after the Holy Spirit empowers us. But that's not the end of the story, even though I, we should look for ways to die to self. But the truth is, verses like Hebrews 8, 11, 6 say, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And then what comes next? That he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. And more than 40 times in the Gospel of Luke alone, there are promises of rewards for being obedient to God. And so I'm here today to not say, to, to, I'm not saying that you should never seek reward. I'm saying that probably if you follow Scripture, you, you, you should seek reward. It's commanded of you to seek reward. And so you're sitting here, you're thinking, okay, well, I'm confused. Because you said, don't seek reward, and now you're saying, seek reward. Well, it depends on how you define the reward that you're after. If the reward that you honestly are after is comfort, success, money, all from a materialistic, selfish, fleshly point of view, then it's wrong to seek reward. But we seek reward, how? By seeking God himself. We seek after God, more of you, Jesus, and the joy that you give, because you are my great reward. You see the difference from our evangelistic calls that would say, come to Jesus, and he'll give you this, this, and this, or come to Jesus, and he's going to give you himself, and the more that you fall in love with him, and the more that you invest your time into being with him, the more joy and fulfillment you're going to find in this life. And you'll live with him forever because eternal life starts now. But we've been brought in on this understanding of I do my part, God does his part, because it's a very comfortable existence for us. We don't live in Liberia. And sure, there's good things that happen to our lives as a result of following God's word. His principles are true, and they bring life to us. And in our culture, doing God's will, not murdering, not committing adultery, not stealing, those things bring residual goodness into your life. 
Not everywhere. They don't, they don't do that in some places. But here they bring good things into your life on a, a materialistic, practical level at some, at some point. Some places they don't do that. But we do believe that they do bring joy and fullness into our lives. No matter what culture you live in. No matter if your culture is anti, don't even believe in the God of the Bible. And you're a believer, but you tell it to the Coptic Christians in Egypt that worshiping God is going to bring about a better, a bigger checking account. These people, they go to church, they risk their life. They get put to death all the time. And so you see, we focused on the wrong things. We focus on Jesus. He's our reward. Outside of the, of the scriptures, John Piper's kind of mindset, his worldview on this, has sculpted my ministry more than anything else. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What he's saying is, Christ is most magnified in us when he is our reward. When Christ is your reward, when you say, I want to know Christ, like Paul says, the fellowship of his suffering, I want to know him. In that, we find our greatest reward, and in that, Christ is most magnified. But you go to work, and you say, it's not fair, so I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to be the laziest employee possible because they're not paying me enough. And the first chance I get, I'm out of here. Or you just go in with a bad attitude every day. What is that saying to the glory of God? But if you go in every day and you say, I'm working for God today, not John, my boss, who's a jerk most of the time. Or the guy that owns his company who makes so much money and I make so little. Instead of going in with that mindset, we go in and say, I'm working for God's glory today. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be diligent. Then God is glorified. Because Jesus is your reward, not the paycheck. God will take care of the paycheck. God will take care of you in the way that he sees fit. He'll supply your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Scripture says. But our focus is totally different. So what drives your behavior? Let me finish with an illustration here. I think probably this was a product of, again, growing up a certain way, certain type churches. But for some reason, I had this mindset for many years that before we went on a trip as a family, that I needed to pray, pray for protection. That, like, if I, like, okay, guys, we're going to pray for this trip that God will protect us. That all of a sudden it's like this, you know, God fairy dust that would go over the car and, and surround this car and protect us on this trip. And what's interesting is you learn more of the facts. 77% of accidents take place within five miles of your house, all right? So I should have been praying this for the short trips around town, not for the long trips. But for some reason, it was just the long trips that I prayed it on. God, protect us. Protect me. And I felt really guilty, like something bad was going to happen if I failed to pray that prayer. If I didn't pray that even to myself, like bad stuff's going to happen. 
And that is a form of, God, I'm going to do something for you, now you do something back. Because my focus was completely the wrong thing. All it was on was my personal safety and my family's personal safety. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. But it's not the best thing. What if the mindset was, God, on this trip, may we bring glory to you in every person that we encounter, every family member that we go to see, every store that we walk in, people will see something different about us. God, control my road rage so I can represent you on this road on, as I'm going up I-75 bumper to bumper and people are going crazy because it's the holidays. Help me to represent you well. But that wasn't even part of my equation. It wasn't part of my thinking. It was, God, protect me from point A to point B. I'm praying because I'm afraid if I don't pray that, you're going like, to get me. Like, you're going you're to cause us to have an accident to get my attention. What's in it for me? What's my payoff? My payoff was just safe passage. God says, here's the greater passage, great, greater payoff is do it for my glory and for your joy. Fulfill your purpose. Live for him. So in closing, summarize with our head, our heart, and hands because it's all three. You need to know it. You need to believe it. And you need to live it. The head, believe that Jesus is your great reward. Believe that. Know that. Maybe you're sitting here and you say that, but in reality, you know that your great reward is your comfort. That if, when you're not comfortable, nobody's comfortable because you don't like to not to be comfortable. You don't like to be told what to do. Is Jesus your great reward? And then your heart it has to be a heart change. Ask God daily to give you a desire for his glory. When you go to him and seek him constantly, God, change my heart. I'll admit my, my heart prefers comfort and money and success, notoriety and attention. I want my reward to be you. And then hands, do it. Do all for the glory of God, whether you eat whether you drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Trust him. Employ all the spiritual disciplines, all the disciplines of grace that are at your disposal. Die to yourself. Live for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we must say that we can definitely relate to many of the struggles of these first century Christians because we're just like they are, that we want to use you for what we want, not what you want. And God, I pray that you will change our hearts. Help us to be a church, a group of people, individuals, who really, truly strive to live for your glory and your honor. And God, we admit we, we all seek after our own pleasure so much. And at some level, it's impossible to separate our lives from that. But God, may you be our greatest reward. May Jesus Christ be who we seek after the most. May he be on center stage in our lives and not us. God, it's your story. It's your creation. It's your eternity. And it's your here and now. Help us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name.